right, folks, welcome to another episode of the Lucid Health Podcast. I am Luke Tullock. So what follows is something that I recorded with Will Berkman of the Weekly Weights Podcast. He is a colleague over at Lift Performance Center where I work. Um, his normal co-host, uh, or his usual co-host, I don't know if he's normal, uh, Alex Hayes is away at the moment, so I got a chance to jump in and have a bit of a chat about training volume. So that's what follows. Uh, I'd recommend checking out the Weekly Weights podcast. That's spelled W-E-A-K, Weekly Weights. Uh, it's a good little podcast I have been on before. So if you want to check out that episode too, that'd be cool. Um, awesome. I'll just let you jump straight into it and see how you go. It was a good chat and I really enjoyed it. Cheers. Welcome to an episode of Weekly Weights. We live weights and we are mates. On the weekend, we go on dates. Weekly Weights, Tim and Buddy. Weekly Weights with Alex and Will. Okay, welcome to Weekly Weights. I'm Will Berkman and Alex Hayes is overseas right now, which means I'm solo hosting. But we're joined by a guest that we've had on previously. It's Luke Tullick, who was here on episode 12. So Luke is a colleague of Alex and myself at Lift Performance Center. He runs Lucid Health Coaching, and he also has an online mentorship program for PTs, which is called the Physiology Fundamentals. That's it. Of course. Um, <laughs> yeah, emphasis on fun. Yep. Um, Luke, is, Luke is delivering some content for Level Up Continuing Education. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, and it's been sourced by other people for other seminars. You did the one recently with Luke Lehman, didn't you? Yeah, I'm doing some stuff at uh, Definition Fitness as well in Wollongong, yep. and then got some stuff in Melbourne this year as well. Uh, so a few things going on, which is cool. Yeah, and you told me you had just enough social media pull to land yourself <laughs> an invitation to this course yeah. with Ben Pakulski tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, apparently, I don't know. I've got like 3,000 followers, so it's not yeah. exactly like influencer level, but... Apparently, uh, apparently, it's enough to go along. So. I have a couple of friends who are actual, like their job is influencer, um, <laughs> which is pretty cool. <laughs> well, very, I'm they influence me, to be <laughs> yeah. honest. Um, it's very hard to say no to them. They're just so influential. Yeah, well, you know. um, yeah, they got a lot of pull. And um, no, apparently, once you do have even just a small number of followers, if they're all like really niched one way or they're geographically condensed, like if you're a hot chick from, I don't know, Bondi, and you have like 5,000 Bondi followers that are dudes that think you're hot, then you're actually a valuable person for yeah. people to market through. Well, that so, makes sense. Yeah, so in the same way, you're like the hottest Erskineville located <laughs> bearded personal <laughs> oh, trainer. Geez. And so Ben Pekulski's gone, that. there's a market yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> All of the hipsters, they need jacking up. Oh, big time they do. I just drove through. So we're recording this, I should say, at um, Casa de Schmoll. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I just drove through Erskineville and it's it's a wasteland of muscle out there. Uh, it's not great. Yeah, yeah, a lot of spaghetti arms around. A lot of spaghetti arms. A lot of latte, which yeah. is good. Um, yeah. But yeah. Except if you're lactose intolerant, half the people seem to be. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, well, almond latte, which yeah. is a, that's a misnomer if ever there were one. Because <laughs> <laughs> latte obviously means milk. So anyway, in the absence of Alex, um, the note, the jokes are probably going to be nerdier and worse. But... Um, <laughs> <laughs> the content's also going to be nerdier. Huh. And what what Luke and I are going to talk about today is basically volume, which is very broad. Um, but we're, we're going to just talk through, in, maybe in a theoretical and then practical sense, um, what the recommendations are for volume levels for, for growing muscle, for developing strength, 
um, what considerations you probably ought to have when appraising how much volume is in a routine because I, you probably can't say that all volume is created equal. So we're just going to have a sort of broad-based talk about that. There should be enough practical takeaways to make it interesting. And if it's not, then sorry in advance. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, on that really bright note, let's begin. Um, Luke, in the broadest sense, what um, what is the relationship between volume and hypertrophy, which is muscle growth and strength? Well, yeah, so generally speaking, we find that training volume, um, as it increases, we tend to see you know, bigger increases in strength, bigger increases in volume, but there's obviously some sort of limit to how much work you can do. Um, You know, we haven't necessarily come across that in the literature yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's some kind of diminishing return to that. I mean, there's got to be, there kind of is with most things in biology, but it's possible that you might also run into a situation where doing too much volume might net you negative returns as well. You might get to a point where you know, maybe your strength actually starts decreasing or your muscle growth starts decreasing. So there's a generally, um, you know, positive relationship between the amount of volume you do every week and how much strength and muscle you gain over that time as well. Um, and we, so, <clears throat> so you said we haven't really established where the top end mm. is and this will probably come out as we talk. I suspect part of the reason for that is because the top end is... Um, like circumstantial or situational yeah. depending on you know how hard your training is how like how well you're recovering and things like that um which we'll get to but in in the ranges that we have observed what does the relationship tend to be like is it like each unit of additional volume gets a linear linear increase in gains or is it is it already diminishing within the range we're observing or it's what? a bit hard to say but up to a point, it seems to be almost linear. Like there's kind of going to be a threshold where, okay, you have there's a minimum amount of work you have to do to get anything out of it. Like you wouldn't expect to go into the gym and do one set of bench press and necessarily like gain a lot of strength or size. But so at some point, there's kind of this bottom end that okay, we should be probably doing a minimum amount to make any progress. And then between that and let's say you know ten sets a week or something like that on a particular muscle group or lift you might start to see an almost linear increase in uh, you know, training volume. It correlates really well with muscle growth and, and progress with strength. And then obviously that's going to differ between individuals, but around there, the data seems to start saying like, okay, we can keep doing more volume and you might still see better gains, but at the same time, per unit of volume, now your gains start to diminish. Right. So... You know, we haven't really established like, okay, for the average person on the bell curve, where is that point? You know, is it seems to be like at the moment, it's kind of like 10 sets as a minimum per body part per week is a really good place to be to make some decent gains. Um, But like after that, we don't really know, like, can you go to 15 and get a similar per unit amount of gains? Can you go to 20? Can you go beyond that? It's a little bit up in the air at the moment. I don't think we have enough data to really show that either way. Yeah. Um, before we get into discussing that, we should probably have actually defined what volume mm, is. True. Um, so, <laughs> so what is volume? So there's like lots of different ways we can talk about it. It tended to always be talked about in terms of like gross tonnage that you would mm. lift in say a session or per week, which is pretty inelegant, I think, you know, yeah. cause you're ending up with like thousands of kilos or tens of thousands of pounds or whatever per session. Mm. Um, and so 
there've been a variety of models to try and make that a little bit more intuitive. So you might have uh, the number of hard working sets, which you could define as you know being within a reasonable range of, of failure on a set. Mm. You could have things like um, you know effective reps, which I suppose we'll talk about a little bit more. But like you know, if you're doing bodyweight push-ups and you can do 50 push-ups. Like if you just were doing 10 sets of 10 push-ups, you wouldn't really expect to get too much out of that. Uh, and so this concept came about that like, okay, but maybe if you go, you know, closer to your top end, closer to failure, maybe if you do sets of 30 or 40, now that's a better stimulus and you might start growing more despite, you know, the volume differences and all that. So it, it's like, there's a few different definitions of it, but the one that I think is the simplest and probably the literature has started to move towards is what we call hard sets or working sets and so that would be um, a set that's in uh, challenging enough to get you within reasonable range of failure so like let's say five reps or less of failure is what i tend to define it as anyway sure i think um in the like in the simplest sense though we could probably say that volume is just a measure of how much work you are doing so when we talk about training variables in general we would talk about intensity being well usually meaning like how close to the most that you can lift we're lifting, so how heavy you're training, um, mm. you know, in relative or absolute terms. Um, frequency would be how often you are training or how often you're hitting a muscle group. And volume describes how much work you are doing at each of these training doses. Yep. And so the reason this whole discussion is important is because um, intensity sort of defines what type of adaptations you tend to get, or at least to some degree it does. Yep. Um, whereas volume is the dose. So you know, if you were to think of training a bit like Panadol, and this is probably a really inelegant... <laughs> analogy but if you're thinking of training a bit like panadol you need to have enough panadol to actually have an analgesic effect to reduce pain um but if you took way too much panadol you'd either get no um no more analgesic effects than you would have with a bit less or i don't know how much panadol do you reckon you need to take to like die (laughs) (laughs) i don't know what the ld50 of panadol is (laughs) (laughs) all right um let me know, listeners, <laughs> please <laughs> if don't you've try. experimented with yeah. a lot of Panadol before. Um, but yeah, like the analogy is sort of useful though. Is you know just like with a drug, there is um, you know there is some type of relationship between how much you take and what return you get, even if the actual sort of stated effect of the drug is similar. And so that's why volume is important, is because when we're training, we want to give the appropriate dose to actually get adaptation without maladaptation. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. We started talking about measures of volume and you said that probably the most accurate and elegant ones are hard sets. Mm. Um, a lot, this is something I observe on social media and it's like a pet hate of mine. Um, probably because it offends, like, it, I don't know. It's probably me thinking I'm smarter than other people. But <laughs> but a lot of people do still like to track things like tonnage. Yep. So um, you already, you sort of started alluding to it. Why are measures like tonnage or just the number of lifts not necessarily good measures? Yeah, well, so obviously, like, let's say you're doing a... Let's give a practical example so people can understand. But if you're doing a warm-up and let's say you want to do your, your working sets on like a 100 kilo bench press or something like that, you know, are you expecting to get a training effect from a warm-up set on 50 kilos where you do like 50 for five reps... Probably not, but that's still volume that you've done in the gym on that day. Mm. Um, you know, so at some point you've got to say, well, some of this volume is not actually driving adaptation, yeah. whereas some of it obviously is. So how do we quantify that? Which is the volume that counts and which is the volume that is um, been referred to as 
junk volume, mm-hmm. um, which may induce some kind of fatigue or some kind of cost to you without really driving much of an adaptation. Um, and so I think gross tonnage is still probably something that you could track, but just understanding that, okay, I'm only going to track the gross tonnage of my, you know, my main working sets or something like that would be a better solution than to just go, right, well, I've lifted this amount of weight and it's more volume than last time. Therefore it's better. Cause that doesn't necessarily mean that all of that volume is actually quote unquote quality volume. That's driving adaptation for you. Yeah. I think gross tonnage, like having said that it annoys me. Gross tonnage can actually be a very useful metric if you have intensity bounds around it. Exactly. So if you say like, you know, whatever. So say my bench one rep max is 100 kilos. It's close to accurate. And, <laughs> um, and I'm, working, I'm working in the 75 to 80% range. And, you know, like day one's tonnage is whatever, 1,000 kilos. Mm. If I'm still working within a similar intensity range, then it actually does give me a good indication of the training dose if the next you know the next day's tonnage is 1200 kilos 100%. or whatever where it's not useful is comparing say like the hypertrophic benefit of a routine where you know in one routine you're training at 60% and the other routine you're training at 85% of yep. your one rep max because what tends to happen is as the relative intensity decreases the amount of volume in tonnage terms you can do goes way up um, but as yeah. Luke was saying before if the or as you were alluding to we'll get to it I guess a bit better if the number of hard sets is similar, then the hypertrophic benefit tends to also be similar. Yep. And so you have a measure that doesn't necessarily scale with hypertrophic benefit well, yep. unless you've already put it within confines. And if you're already putting it within confines, then probably just tracking hard sets also just gives you the same number with less zeros after it. Yeah, I agree. And I think obviously we'll get to it a little bit more, but I think um, it's a little bit different for strength training and hypertrophy in that there's a broader range of intensities that work potentially similarly or equally well Mm. to grow muscle and so like you said you know if you were doing a set to failure on 40 percent of your one one rep max versus a set at 80 percent of your one rep max the amount of volume that you would do on that 40 percent one rm is potentially you know three or four times the amount that you'd be doing on the 80 percent one rm so that you can't it's it may have an equal hypertrophic outcome but the tonnage is just like completely uncomparable yeah. Uh, whereas for strength training, because most of your you know your hard training is probably going to be close to your one RM because you've got to train heavy at some point, it's probably a little bit more useful in that term. Yeah, and I think another um, another measure that people use is the number of lifts that you do. Mm. And this is I know this is something that was tracked in the Shaco programs right. um, as a measure of volume. And again, I think this can be useful when you're thinking within a certain intensity range. So, you know, if your block has an average intensity of 75% and it varies from a low of 65 to a high of 80 or something, then saying I did 100 100 squats this week and then 120 squats next week is maybe maybe a useful measure. Mm. But just saying I did this number of reps for the same reason that tonnage is is a poor measure is probably a poor one too. Yep. Um, And I actually started writing a little bit about this for an article. to help me gather my thoughts for this episode. And one of my frustrations was one of the big the big papers that looked at the relationships between things like frequency, intensity, and volume, and hypertrophy was by a guy called Wernbaum. Mm. And and his recommendation came out being something like it's like 30 to 60 
reps per session. Yeah, I was going to mention that. Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, Steal my thunder. Yeah. I'm actually pretty much going to just plagiarize this entire podcast, <laughs> write it as an article, put it out oh, one day earlier. Yeah. Yeah. And share it to acclaim. Very well, smart. I mean, it depends what we say, to be honest. It could be <laughs> well, now the rubbish. rest of this is going to be tanks. So yeah. Well, maybe. <laughs> but yeah, so without confines of intensity, mm. though, um, and proximity to failure, the number of lifts is not necessarily a good indication for hypertrophy. Yep. For strength, it can be, again, because strength tends to be bounded by those intensity confines. Yes, yeah. Um, and a way that people try to get around that, or again, I've seen this in strength programming, I haven't really seen this in hypertrophy, is a measure called INOL, intensity, <laughs> intensity mm-hmm. times number of lifts, but then they just got rid of the times. So, um, <laughs> so where they would make, and this is the nerdiest thing. If you see somebody calculate this, this is why it annoys me because I, I don't think it matters that much. Yeah. But if you see somebody calculate it, what they'll do is they'll make intensity a like a decimal. So you know, seventy five percent is 0.75. Yep. And if you do ten lifts at seventy five percent, you get 0.75 oh, times geez. ten, so seven and a half. Blah 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 blah. And then you end up with you end up with a measure of how much volume you've done um, corrected for intensity. Okay. Right, and then so you can do that across all of your sessions within a week and within a month, and then by comparing your inols, you can see how much more volume you do. It's probably it's probably in some way accurate because it corrects for everything, but I don't think it's elegant. No, not at all. Because it seems to take a while. Yeah, and also I don't know that you can necessarily say that the. I suppose the cost to your physiology is the same, like is on a linear scale. Like as it gets heavier, I would, I would imagine that there is a little bit more wear and tear involved and potentially fatigue involved. For sure. Uh, you know, so that's a bit hard to quantify as well if you're just doing straight out numbers, right? Yeah, but I would say that the cost to my physiology from doing three hard sets at 90%, say if my deadlift yep. is still greater than if I do three hard sets at 65% yeah, on sure. my deadlift too. So. Um, so while <clears throat> while it doesn't account how difficult it is on your physiology, maybe if they made INOL RPE, yeah, oh, <laughs> um, God. yeah. don't put that out into the world. <laughs> Get some nerd trying to do it. Um, yeah, maybe if they did that, it would account for it better. But <laughs> but I don't think like I don't think that's a problem confined to that. But the, I guess the point of this discussion is there's heaps of heaps of ways people tend to measure volume. But like you said, the literature is tending to congregate towards just the number of hard sets. Yeah. Um, you sort of started to allude to why. Why is why are hard sets a good measure of what volume is? So we have some um, literature showing that there's a fairly broad range of intensities that we can get hypertrophic adaptations from, um, in particular. And so we used to think that you know if you're lifting less than you know, whatever, 60% or 70% of your 1RM, there's just not enough of a, of a load there, not enough of a stimulus to optimally get muscle growth. Um, and there was some research that came out that compared even as low as 30 and 40% 1RM, so long as it's taken really close to failure or to failure is comparable in muscle growth to much higher intensities like 80% or 85%. Um, so that basically means that there's a variety of rep ranges that could potentially work all the way from say 50 reps to failure all the way down to maybe five reps to failure on a lift could potentially produce similar hypertrophy um, which obviously means you know if you're doing 
50 reps on something, the, the gross tonnage, like we said before, is just going to be huge, whereas a set of five is going to be quite small. But if you're getting the same hypertrophy out of it, then you just need to try and compare on a set-by-set basis. So, you know, a hard set of five might be similar in terms of a hard set of 30 uh, for muscle growth. Uh, and so just measuring your hard sets then becomes a much easier way to just standardize everything across intensities. Yeah. Um, the reason, or, or at least my understanding of it is, the reason that comparing the number of hard sets is a useful way of comparing training volumes is because for a given hard set um, to a given proximity to failure, we tend to have a similar number of effective reps. Um, what, yeah. what is the concept of effective reps trying to describe? The idea is that um, it comes back to something called the size principle. So basically what we're trying to do when we train is we're trying to put tension across muscle fibers, right? So the way your brain works is that it's not going to recruit all of its available muscle fibers at once to lift something. It only recruits what it needs to to get the job done. So if you pick up your water bottle, you have control over that and you're not, you don't throw it through the roof because your brain knows, okay, I don't need to recruit all of my available muscle fibers to move this really light object. Mm. So the same thing happens in the gym when we're pushing against resistance. If there's, you know, if you're trying to lift your one RM, your nervous system is trying to recruit as many possible fibers as it can to lift that weight. But if you're lifting something that is maybe your 15 RM, the first five to 10 reps may not uh, require very much um, you know, muscle fiber recruitment and so your brain doesn't recruit all of the fibers so the idea is as you get closer to failure what's happening is some of those muscle fibers are starting to fall out of recruitment they get tired and they can't keep contracting and so eventually what happens is when you hit failure you have placed stimulus across every possible available muscle fiber and your brain has exhausted all avenues in trying to lift that weight so you know a set of uh, let's use more extreme examples a set of five reps you're probably at maximal recruitment for the entire set but a set of 50 reps you might not reach maximal recruitment until the last five reps of that set when you're really really tired the weight slows right down and your brain's doing everything it can to just get those last five reps out and so the effective reps of two of those sets are the same um, meaning that it just takes a lot longer to reach your effective reps on the lighter sets okay so <clears throat> So then what is the implication of that for program design? Because yeah. if like, given what you just said, everybody training for growth could just go lift like one to five RMs yep. repeatedly and get heaps of effective reps done and do you know, no more reps than they have to to get maximum fiber recruitment. Yeah, I think that's like a bit of, a, of an issue when it comes to these ideas in practice because there's a lot more going on than just that right mm. so when we grow muscle um, or when we're trying to improve strength there are different factors that combine to produce the training effect so you know some of them are related to metabolic stress some of them are related to the amount of tension that goes across the fibers some of them may be related to muscle damage and so the number of effective reps doesn't necessarily tell you what your training outcome is going to be right mm. um Obviously, doing a set of 50 is much more metabolically demanding than doing a set of five. And so there's a different um, enzymatic pathways and signaling processes that happen in that set, even though you have five effective reps, versus the set of five where the tension is very high uh, and the weight's very high as well, and you have a similar number of effective reps. So I think what it means is just that you're not necessarily chasing the number of effective reps all the time, but you can use that concept to basically... 
uh, use a variety of rep ranges. And the idea is just as long as the sets are hard enough and you're getting close enough to failure, i.e. you're getting a similar number of hard working sets or effective reps in, you should be able to get a similar outcome in terms of hypertrophy. Now, obviously it's different for strength, right? Like mm -hmm. if you're training for strength, the utility of doing a 50 rep set to failure is pretty low. Yeah. Uh, whereas, you know, you're not going to get much stronger on that. But if your goal is to get stronger and bigger, you might be lifting mostly heavier stuff as well, right? And so because you said there were different signaling pathways for the very high rep sets and the very low rep sets, do you think there's, um, do you think there's benefit to people who are training for size to combine rep ranges to have some heavy tension work and some very light work? Yeah, I definitely do. There's some people who think you don't need to, but if we think about it, those... Every, every set, it's on a continuum, right? So every set has some measure of that. If we think about a set of five, there is some metabolic stress there. Like mm. it does produce some lactate. It does produce some, actually what inhibits your work capacity is more hydrogen ions and inorganic phosphate, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> we won't get into that. All the uh, listeners are oh, just, they're they've so turned off now, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was thinking that's the, <laughs> that's the part that people are going to clip. Oh, yeah. Just, yeah, they'll love that. There'll be memes about phosphate with people just in ecstasy. Just quotable. Oh, highly quotable. Inorganic yeah. phosphate. Um, you heard PO4? PO4 hey. minus? Yeah. yeah. Something like that. Lovely. Oh, <laughs> um, anyway, so, yeah, yeah, but so. no, but so the the idea is that you know that heavy set of five, you're still getting some metabolic stress, mm -hmm. um, but it's just not as much metabolic stress as the really you know light set. So the, like yeah, there's a spectrum there, and I think it's good to train along that spectrum. If you are training primarily for strength, that spectrum should probably be narrower and more of the time should be biased towards heavier work. Mm -hmm. If you're training for hypertrophy, I think it can come down to personal preference. Um, but I think that, you know, when you're lifting really heavy, you're, you're maximizing recruitment, but you're also maximizing mechanical tension across the fibers. When you're training for uh, hypertrophy and you're doing lighter sets, then potentially you're getting more metabolic stress there, which is an alternative pathway to also... Uh, induce muscle growth protein synthesis in the muscle and you may get some other benefits out of that as well you know with regards to increased capillarization um better and glycogen like storage yeah, growth of, things yeah growth of like your little blood vessels and stuff around the area to supply blood mm. um uh, you may also get improvements in the way your body uh, handles glycogen stored carbohydrate so there's a few benefits to that like that are metabolically based mm. you know outside of just muscle growth right it's also not to say that light sets don't provide attention stimulus no right? because if you're doing a set of 50 you might only have a certain number of your muscle fibers active at a time to produce that force and they're being cycled through near fatigue yes. but on an individual fiber level they're still subjected to high levels of tension exactly right yeah exactly so that that effective reps towards the end you're still getting a huge amount of tension across all the fibers it's just mm -hmm. not quite the same type of signaling that happens when you've got a very heavy load in your hands um the concept of effective reps got me thinking about something else, and I just want to know your thoughts on this. I didn't prepare you for this one either. So. No, I'm nervous now. Um, no, <laughs> it's it's that when say we do a bench press, mm. right? When people do bench, they don't just grow their chest or triceps; they grow you know chest, triceps, front delt, side delt a little bit. All the muscles that are involved actually grow mm. to some degree, even though only one of the muscles at a time or maybe, you know, maybe two, are subjected to close to maximal tension, right? So the concept of effective reps is, you know, is trying to describe like how many, like which, when fibers are subjected to maximal tension, I should say. But it doesn't seem to be that that's a necessary condition to induce growth. Um, 
So I wanted to know if you could think of a particular explanation for that or how people can sort of like come to rationalize that. Well, I think that's a problem with the idea. I, I really think it is because, it, as you said, it doesn't, it doesn't account for things like technique and, and, you know, where that tension is being placed for lack of a better <laughs> phrase. And, and obviously we're saying for optimal hypertrophy, you need to be within range of failure, but hypertrophy can occur if you don't go to failure. Mm. You're still putting tension across fibers. You're still recruiting those muscles yeah it can still grow with sub-maximal or like you know not extremely hard sets way sub-maximal if you think about it many powerlifters that i know mm. will end up doing like four sets of 10 in their off season with a weight that they could do for 25 30 yep like if i do if i've squatted 180 for 20 you remember that time yeah, and i do I and then you did the milk, milk after yeah yeah um, <laughs> alex brings that up every like two weeks <laughs> on the podcast so like i've squatted 180 for 20 and then sculled a liter of milk yeah but if i do like i sometimes do like four sets of 10 squats at 140 to 150 kilos which is comically easy it doesn't yeah. feel easy but it's very easy right and if i do that for six or eight weeks at a time my quads tend to start growing you know bordering on visibly Right, so there's there must be some hypertrophic benefit to training that is super duper submaximal, and not only that, but you know people who squat only, even though only the quads and you know maybe the glutes are getting close to full recruitment, people who squat still get some development in other muscles. They still get some development in the postural muscles and things, you know that they use when they squat. If you were to ask Mark Ruto every time what he grows from the testosterone, but. But yeah, so people do people do grow from training that's very very easy, and they do grow, um, they do grow in muscles that aren't taken close to failure. So you know, I would say like when I think about effective reps, I don't I think effective is a misnomer. It's probably like yeah. maximally effective reps. I agree with that. I think it's a really uh, it's it's too much of a black and white uh, term. And again, we're we're assuming that like every rep is the same on every set. You know, if you're approaching failure on a bench press and your pecs are completely tapped out. You know, you may shift your position to try and recruit more triceps. It's a pretty common thing, right? Mm. Um, or the other way around or whatever, you know. So your technique could change throughout the rep and you could shift that tension elsewhere and recruit fibers from a different area. Um, so just saying effective reps is, yeah, I don't think it's, I mean, it's good as a concept, uh, but it does need to be fleshed out more and it contains a lot more nuance than I think people have sort of given it credit for. Well, <laughs> despite that, there are training routines that are sort of designed to maximize effective reps. Yep. So one that comes to mind for me is Maya reps. Mm. So tell me if I describe this incorrectly, but a set of Maya reps involves taking a weight to concentric failure or very close. So you might do an 8RM, say you're doing dumbbell presses for Maya reps. You'd lift a weight that you could lift for about eight times, about eight times. And then you do clustered sets after. And I think... I'm not sure if they just set a number of reps that you're going to achieve in your clusters total or whether they say you're going to do clusters of four. But you do those clustered those clustered reps after on short rests and because you have incomplete recovery, the, the presumption is that you stay fatigued across all of your reps. So pretty much every rep you do after the first activation set, I said activation with air quotes, um, every rep you do after that is an effective rep. And so the presumption is you get more hypertrophic benefit from doing fewer reps and it's very time efficient. Yeah, that's the basic idea. So the um, I, the way I've heard it described is that if you try and achieve the same number of extra reps on your subsequent sets that you yep. got in your first set. So let's say you, say you got eight reps in your first set, you try and achieve another eight quote unquote effective reps in your subsequent sets and however many sets it takes you to get that is fine. Mm. That's kind of how I've heard it described before. 
Um, but that's the idea is just that your, your metabolic stress stays really high, which means you're still recruiting maximally as many fibers as you can. Um, and so you get those effective reps pretty much like the same, supposedly the same number of effective reps um, within you know, a set that might take you a minute to complete versus you know, having four sets that take you three minutes rest in between each of them. So very time efficient. So again, this comes back to how you might define volume. If you, all you cared about was effective reps or hardworking sets, then that would be equivalent to doing four by eight and just resting two to three minutes in between. But I think the concept is reasonably sound if you are strapped for time, but I can't see that it would produce the exact same results. Um, I think the overall amount of volume that you do in terms of tonnage is still important mm. and the amount of time under tension you have is still important to an extent. And so I, I have used the Maya reps. I've found them to be pretty good. I obviously haven't measured how much muscle growth I get out of it. Um, but I, I think it's, it's a cool technique if you're strapped for time or if there's a body part that you just find boring to train or something, it kind of spices it up. Yeah. But um, that, yeah, I mean, that's the idea. But I think still doing the straight sets is probably a more effective method overall. So if we are doing straight sets, then what what practical ways can people sort of determine that their sets are adequately close to failure to be effective? Yeah, well, so the first thing I want to say is also that, um, you know, with the MyRep idea, the idea is that you want to recommence uh, lifting your sets after a fairly short break so that the metabolic stress remains high even though you're a bit fatigued mm. uh, because it, let's say you rested 45 seconds or a minute instead of 15 seconds or 20 seconds. The idea is that all the metabolic stress is gone, but you've still got a really high level of fatigue remaining. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you're kind of in this no man's land in between. This is the idea anyway. In between being fully recovered to do another set after three minutes, say, versus like still having really high metabolic stress, keeping your muscle fiber recruitment high after 20 seconds. Sure. Um, so I think, uh, you know, obviously using RPE or a reps and reserve model is a really handy way of working out uh, whether a working set is effective or not. Yeah. So I use that quite a lot with my programming. I might give a very broad rep range. So let's say for uh, a typical hypertrophy um, phase, I might say, look, I want you to use a load that you could get eight to 12 reps with um, or even a broader range, eight to 15 reps. Uh, and then you might say, okay, but I want you to stay three reps away from failure or two reps away from failure. So, yep. Sorry, there's a chainsaw outside and Luke is just rapidly closing the windows. Sweet. Right. Yeah, so, you know, I think using reps and reserve or an RPE model um, is a really handy way of doing that, but it does take practice, I think, uh, especially if you're doing higher rep sets and asking someone to say, stay three reps away from failure, it can be really difficult to do if you don't have a lot of experience, mm. um, which is a bit of a challenge. But the thing that I do like about it is that it does, if you do it honestly, I think it actually produces better results from many people because they actually do push to, you know, not a specific rep number. You know, if I program for people and I give them a set of eight to 10, without fail, they hit 10 reps, no yeah. matter what. Yeah. Meaning they probably could have done more. So, <laughs> yeah. Or they should have gone heavier. Um, you know, so I think that's a massive advantage of having an RPE or a reps and reserve model. Yeah, I think... Um, what am I going to say about that? Um, the, actually, you can clarify this for me. So one of the studies, if not the study, that people base 
this idea that anything within about five reps of failure um, gets full fiber recruitment from was by Sunstrop or something. And it's the one where I think people were doing lateral raises or something. And they, I think it was surface AMG of the shoulder. I'm not 100%. Yep. Um, but <clears throat> if I've got this correct, there were subjects in a lab lifting weights to failure at about a 12 to 15 RM, right? And then they've got surface AMG. And then after the fact, they were able to say, well, we hit peak three to five reps from failure. But in a lab setting, like I've been a... Fuck that chainsaw was annoying. Jesus. Apologies. That's all right. I can put the noise gate on, dude. Um, all right. Very brief hiatus so that we could address the chainsaw issue. Um, no, Luke, I was, I was saying, if I've got this correct, if I've got this correct, they were doing the sets to failure. Then after the fact, they're measuring where they got peak AMG. I've been a research subject for actually a couple of um, exercise science studies. And I've helped actually conduct a couple. And when people are in a lab setting, it's not like in the gym where volitional failure is like, you know, you stop at 10 because it's pretty hard. Like you have researchers yelling at you, really, really making you work hard. And so what people conceive of being or of as being three or five reps from failure is probably actually a decent amount easier than what you see in that study. And a true three reps from failure is like, you know, still actually very hard (laughs) Um, oh it is for sure and so when I prescribe to people hey I want you to do I do a really similar thing I'll say you know three sets of 8 to 12 with three reps in reserve Mm. presuming they'll go something like 12, 10, 8 across their sets if they're honest most of the time Um, a lot of people think that's going to be very easy but they should actually be very hard sets and likewise a set with one rep in reserve in a research setting is like achingly difficult it's like you know with a gun to your head you'd get one more Mm. um and so the level of the level of exertion that people do even to volitional failure so stopping because they think they can't do more not concentric failure where like they try and fail is way way higher in those settings than you'd expect so even even then i tend to err towards slightly lower rirs so i almost never prescribe more than three unless it's a deload because people's three is probably closer to a five or six that you would get in a lab Um, yeah yeah. that's a legit issue as well and you know i think that's one of the things when people complain about um studies and stuff they don't actually realize a lot of those training studies are actually like way more difficult than their actual training is yeah you know what i mean like they complain like oh this doesn't look like a training session that i would do it's like yeah it's probably harder than what you would do even though it doesn't look like it on paper because a true two failure uh, set is very very difficult and when you have a whole team of people yelling at you in a lab setting to do it then that's a different situation than you training by yourself and flicking through instagram yeah i gotta say like without defending this particular study's design because it was like not the best <laughs> one of the studies that i helped with when i was on placement for my sports science degree was about um was about exercise diet and gait modification to help people with osteoarthritis and the exercise component was really hard they had like mm. eight or ten um, exercises per session they do three sets of 10 and they they started them at 60% and then they just added like 5% every week right and so they'd end up doing like three sets of 10 at 80% of their previous 1RM which was really hard and then they'd test them right and what they did they would test like 12 exercises or 14 exercises because they had a number of them in the program it was a two day program they would test all of them on one day 1RM right and your 1RM was defined as when you couldn't lift the next load. So oh, it was Jesus. like very hard, right? <laughs> and then they had to do a 60% AMRAP of all of them. Oh my God. Um, for, for endurance. And I 
think they also had to do a power one where they do like lift as fast as you can at like 60% or something like that. So it's just like CrossFit games for osteoporosis. Well, the thing is the people who were doing this study were invariably like 55 to 80. Oh my God. So there's these people coming in and doing these marathon, like 90 minute sessions, like one RM leg press, 60% AMRAP power measurement. And I was just like, oh my God, like these people are inspiring. (laughs) You know, and I've got my clients who like you ask them to do, yeah, four sets of five at like 70% on the deadlift saying it's hard. I'm like, man, like you should see what Glenn, from <laughs> from Dale was doing in her arthritis study and put you to shame. Yeah, it's true. But yeah, re- like research studies, what they do is actually really hard. Um, so you said an RIR measurement was a good way of determining that reps were effective. I think it can be, provided that you set the RIRs hard enough and people are relatively honest. Mm. And I think that takes practice. And like you said, I think it's easier for lower rep sets. Another one that you told me about that I thought was a really good observation was to do with rep speed. And you were saying that if um, if the speed of repetitions sort of involuntarily begins to slow down, that's usually a good indication that people are getting close to failure. Yeah. So do you want to just expand on that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. So it works on that principle that we spoke about before with the effective reps. As you get closer to failure, um, muscle fibers start getting tired and inorganic phosphate... Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Huh? Uh, starts to out for that. <laughs> <laughs> they were waiting for it. It made a return. Um, starts to accrue, and then basically your your nervous system can't keep contracting all of its available fibers, and so your rep speed starts to decrease, um, even though you're pushing as hard as you can. So I tend to use. I tend to tell people, look, your your goal is to get three from failure. Um, and one of the ways you can determine if you're getting close to failure is if you have a really significant slowdown in your rep speed, even though you're still pushing really hard against the bar. Mm. Um, and usually that gets them closer to failure than if they were to just try and judge it themselves. Yeah. Uh, so I think using slowdowns in rep speed during a set is, is really handy in that regard because it tells us for sure that fibers are starting to drop out of recruitment and you're getting to a point where you're forced to maximally recruit the fibers that are available to you to keep moving the load. Do you reckon, this is just me spitballing completely, do you ever think that saying something like, you know, stop two or three reps after the slowdown starts would be a useful way of programming? Yeah, I've tried to do that. Um, uh, You know, I think it depends on the personality of the person and how much practice they've had with the reps and reserve model. Yeah. Um, But definitely, uh, you know, I think that's a pretty handy way of doing things. And that's how I tend to think about it too. Um, especially if I've gone back to a an exercise I haven't done in a while and I'm not really aware of what my sort of performance benchmarks are for that exercise. Yeah. You know, I'll think to myself, look, I'll do as many as I can sort of thing until I'll try and get three reps away from failure. And when I experience that massive slowdown, I know, okay, I'm probably within a rep or two of getting to my target. Um, so I think it's pretty handy in that regard, but it also requires some form of proficiency on the exercise. Yeah. Uh, you know, so you have to be able to actually perform the exercise to a point where you can get close to failure and still have, um, you know, those, those muscle fibers being recruited. Whereas if it's like an unpracticed, uh, variation of an exercise, you might find that that rep slowdown is coming because you're not able to perform it correctly or something like that. Yeah, and it also takes a lot of mindfulness during your set. I'm just thinking, yeah. you know, were I myself to be thinking, oh, did that last rep slow down when I was like under the bar squatting? That yeah, would probably totally. almost throw me off. Well, I think that's part of the problem as well. And I suppose we can segue into that is just exercise selection. You know, to give someone a, a one from fail on a squat, it's like... <laughs> 
A, is that ever going to happen because people will psychologically bail out before that happens? And B, there's so many muscle groups involved that you'll find a way to get a squat up uh, just because you're, you know, you're... Uh, wellness your health depends on it in many cases <laughs> wellness your wellness yeah, yeah. there's um, a term i never hoped to say <laughs> on that yeah, yeah i had to introduce it somehow yeah. it's not just almond milk around here babe we're no, all about was, wellness and nursing uh, you've got a big pile of vegan chocolate next to you and, <laughs> and what looks like a wind charm actually <laughs> uh it's a spirit catcher actually. oh i'm sorry yeah <laughs> Uh, you know, so exercise selection is pretty easy if you're sitting in like a chest press machine or you're doing a bicep curl to get close to failure and experience what that feels like. But, you know, on something like uh, a leg press, it's a bit harder on something like a squat or a deadlift. I mean, that's really hard, right? And yeah. you're, you're, then, then you're also ex- more exposed to risk of injury or shifting your recruitment to another muscle group that you're not necessarily trying to train. Yeah, I've got two observations to do with that. So one is that it's like people seem to think that legs take higher volumes to grow optimally than, Mm. than the upper body. Um, which is funny because most people also think the upper body can tolerate more volume, but, um, but in fact, even Lyle McDonald wrote this series recently when he got pissed off at that Schoenfeld paper that said <laughs> yeah. that really high volume. That made him really productive when he got that annoyed. Oh man, he got so pissed off. Um, <laughs> he's even when he's being a dickhead, he's really brilliant. He's yeah. very smart. Um, he wrote, he wrote this fantastic series. And yeah, in some of the papers that had compared upper body and lower body volumes, it often seems to be observed that the lower body needs more volume. And I suspect, and I'll tie in my second observation to this, I suspect it's just because people are less inclined to take lower body exercise close to failure, whether it's for safety or because it's just harder, because like it takes more energy to do a set of 10 squats to failure than it does to do a set of 10 bicep curls, irrespective mm. of, of the actual difficulty. That's number one. And number two, and this is important in a practical sense particularly for power lifters is when we talk about how many hard sets a week should you be doing to grow um, most powerlifting training is very submaximal, even in the off season so using my four sets of 10 squat as an example um, those four sets of 10 probably don't amount on a one-to-one basis to hard sets in the same way they would were i to make my four sets of 10 be 190 kilos or something that would actually be hardish for me to do for 10 um, and so Oftentimes when I say these numbers, when I say to people, you should probably do seven or eight hard sets twice a week or something on a body part if you really want to grow. Um, a lot of powerlifters will be like, man, I do 14 sets of squats a week. You know, how am I going to only do another two sets of quads when like I normally do 14 sets of squat, like squats, three sets of hack squats and three sets of leg extensions twice. And in like in that instance, when you're appraising your own program, you have to think, well, how hard is my truly submaximal work? And you probably have to arbitrarily decide whether it counts one for one. But in reality, if you did that, then you probably have five actual hard sets from your hack squats and your leg extensions. And then, you know, many less sets than you actually prescribe for squats that are truly hard hypertrophy sets. And that's not to say they're not beneficial, but you probably need to actually bump up the volume of your accessory work to compensate for the fact that your powerlifting work, if it is prescribed, at some maximal intensities is probably not maximally hypertrophic. And so people who try and go really, really bare bones while also keeping their powerlifting stuff super submaximal tend to not grow that well mm. because they're not actually doing enough hard work. And then the people who do a more power ability approach who do their powerlifting stuff, you know, hardish or for technique or something and then follow it with a whole bunch of bodybuilding work get really jacked because the powerlifting stuff doesn't impose as much recovery cost as they think and also doesn't impose 
as much hyper hypertrophic benefit as they think. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, and I think it also, you know, that ties into um, exercise selection as well. You know, if you're doing sets of rows, like you're using your biceps, but probably not maximally, right? So, yeah. how do you count the volume for that? Um, do we consider a volume that gets close to failure on a row as equally stimulating to, say, your um, you know, your back muscles as your biceps? Like, probably not. Mm. And I think it might have been Lyle as well that sort of considers that if you do any compound movements for your arms, that probably counts as like half the volume that it does for the, the main muscle that you're working, so your back muscle. Yeah. Um, and, but even then that differs depending on your exactly. execution and the grips you take like yeah your your build like all of those mechanics i mean it's yeah at the end of the day it's kind of a crapshoot and so yep. it's like yeah exactly. <laughs> um you know all of these numbers are just a useful way of appraising your training and appraising other training and trying to reconcile the difference without necessarily being useful on a purely prescriptive basis right yeah exactly and i mean to circle back on on prescription like if you're looking at a study Firstly, it's going to report averages, but secondly, it's never, ever, ever is a study set up prescriptive to an individual. Mm. So it does come down to sort of trying things and seeing what works, but you need to have some way of tracking what works, right? So even if it's an imperfect method of using, you know, uh, training load, you know, like your uh, total tonnage versus uh, effective reps or versus hard sets, at least it's something that you can sort of try and standardize, Mm. even though it's not perfect. I think we'll take a really quick break and come back. There's a couple more things I'd like to discuss. I'll introduce them after this. Welcome back. It's Weekly Weights. I'm Will. With me is Luke. And I stopped him there because I had a brainwave. um, And that was actually measuring how your hypertrophy training is going. So obviously most of us don't have access to laboratory measures of muscle growth Mm. and also most of us don't grow at you know really visible speeds um day by day week by week luke what are the best proxy measures for seeing how jacked you're getting well i think that's this is where you know your performance in the gym and things like gross tonnage or number of working sets you're doing can be really handy because that is at least something that is trackable that can improve at a faster or a more visible rate than say you know visibly looking at your muscles uh obviously it's a really slow process but if you are ticking a bunch of boxes like okay i consistently get enough protein i consistently get enough sleep and my lifts are consistently going up we know that progressive overload is pretty important in terms of continuing to improve and push the adaptation process forward i think those are decent proxies you know if you've checked all those boxes you can go look i'm pretty sure i'm going to be growing if i continue to do this and there's a trend there Um, you know, whereas if you're not tracking that or if your data's all over the place, you can kind of go, well, look, I mean, I don't know, I could be growing, but I couldn't be sure. Uh, whereas I think if you've got, you know, multiple things in check and that's the way I I work with my clients, you know, for fat loss, you don't necessarily have to be getting, you know, DEXA scans or whatever. Not that they're like the perfectly accurate way of doing things, but like, if scale weight's going down and um, some girth measurements are changing and your clothes feel a bit different, then it's like, okay, we've got a few different data points that we can pull together and say, yeah, look, you're probably trending in the right direction and you're losing fat, you know? Um, so similarly for hypertrophy, there's a few little things like that. So uh, again, like working sets um, over time maybe going up or training loads over time going up. So 
you know, rep PRs, for example, going up, things like that uh, are really good to track to make sure that you are actually growing. So I tend to think um, mostly, okay, at least partly because I don't actually take things like girth measurements and stuff on my clients. Um, for hypertrophy, I like to look at multi-set performance in moderate rep ranges for a number of exercises. Yeah. Um, and there's a couple of reasons, but if you, yeah, um, and actually Luke, you, you said this to me very elegantly, but basically if you have a three or four set performance in the yeah, six to 10 range for a number of exercises that use a given muscle and they're all going up, then chances are that muscle is growing. You won't expect that to happen at an astronomical rate. Um, the reason why I'm a bit leery of using just rep PBs on the competition lifts for powerlifters is because one, I'm always looking to improve technical efficiency. Yep. And I guess like almost the truest measure of technical efficiency is being able to lift more without actually having to produce much more force. Exactly. So, And if you're not having to produce much more force to do it, then you probably don't need more force producing architecture. Um, that's number one. But also number two, one of the biggest issues that I have with powerlifters using volume PBs in general is that without comparable um, measures of difficulty for the sets, they don't necessarily tell you much. Mm. And as an anecdote between my last couple of comps, I got, you know, two to five kilos stronger on my squat without hitting any rep PBs. Actually, even better measure. I probably got two to five kilos stronger on my squat between, or well, maybe five kilos stronger on my squat between the end of 2017 and the end of 2018, right? Which doesn't sound like a lot, <laughs> but in fact, it was a lot of work for not much, but I got about five kilos stronger and I... I don't think I hit any rep PVs in almost that entire time. But in my head, I was thinking I was probably capable at one stage of hitting hitting what my previous best 3x3 on my squat was. I was probably capable of hitting it with five kilos more mm. at the end of 2018. But I suspect had I done it, it would have actually been harder by a decent way than it had been when I did you know, my three by three in 2017. Yeah. And so while I could have said, well, there's five kilos more on my best ever three by three, that's not actually necessarily a measure of improvement. If it's like, well, I did more cause I tried harder. Yeah. Um, and so I think close to max effort sets are probably a better indication of strength progress than volume PBs. Mm. And I also don't think volume PBs for powerlifting are necessary, at least in the like medium term to see increases in strength because provided your work is in the productive range, it doesn't have to be a personal best every time to still be getting you stronger. And it's sort of the sum of your training efforts that make you better. And then bringing that back to hypertrophy, if powerlifters go, well, like I improved my best ever four by 10 by 10 kilos on squats, probably some of that is attributable to the fact that you've gotten like bigger muscles, but a large part will probably be because you got better at squatting, you got better conditioned and you tried harder than last time. Because there's not many powerlifters who really chew off like the hardest possible 4 by 10 they can yeah. week in, week out on squats for all the reasons we've already said before. Um, but if you instead say, well, you know, my my rep efforts on squats are going up with comparable RIRs and then next to that, I'm leg extending, as boring as that sounds, I'm leg extending more than I was before. More loads, similar volumes, you know, similar RIRs. I'm doing more on the leg press. I'm doing more on my lunges and hack squats and things. Then there the sum of those indicators would say my legs are probably growing. Yeah. I I think that's really handy. And like, I definitely use single joint movements and stuff as more of a proxy for progress than I do compound movements because there's a strength, there's a, you know, skill component to the compounds in general. Yeah. So So, just to expand on that, what you're saying is basically that 
your ability to move efficiently matters a lot more on something like a squat that is technically complex yeah. than a leg extension. Like if you get better at leg extending, it's because you can extend your knee harder, yeah. not because you can coordinate a heap of things. Yeah, exactly. You haven't gotten, you know, there's not much skill involved in just like pushing against a pad like that versus a squat. Mm-hmm. There's a lot going on that you can get better at without growing any more muscle. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing. But I think quite an interesting thing as well is that I've found with uh, a lot of my clients. So most of my clients have been with me for several years and a couple for like five years plus. And as they tend to grow more muscle, it's like, or they get stronger, those top end sets, um, the, the actual total volume tends to go down mm. uh, or sometimes even the amount of work they can do, even though they've gotten more muscle. And I think it's probably because they've gotten more muscle. Yeah. And I found this with myself is that uh, if you have more muscle uh, and also if you're lifting more load, let's say you're a, you're a very strong powerlifter or something, um, just the, the general cost to your physiology to lift that load goes up exponentially right yeah and so it's not quite the same as like oh my 60 percent 1rm used to be 60 kilos now my 60 percent 1rm is 100 kilos like that 100 kilos is probably of a much greater cost doing that to your physiology and therefore much harder maybe you can't do as much volume on that yeah um you know so like to give you an example with bodybuilding like if you have a huge amount of muscle that uh huge amount of muscle uh when you're doing say it's your quads and you're doing like a leg extension because you've now got so much more muscle, it's like more compressive of the, it provides a greater compressive effect during a higher rep set. And so yeah. you get a greater accrual of metabolic stress there. And that happens sooner than when you were much skinnier or smaller. Yeah. Um, you know, so you can't necessarily always say that your performance is going to go up for a given exercise because you might be able to generate a lot more stress or a lot more tension across a muscle um, when you're bigger and stronger. Sure. Uh, which means you're actually your performance kind of looks like it's going down even though you've grown a lot more muscle. Yeah. And something I, um, I think I wrote about this. I wrote this very long article about hypertrophy that didn't really have a point. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but something that, something that I observe. And so, so I'm starting to think about more advanced lifters as well is that because they can produce so much tension and stress with a given amount of work, the recovery time, basically there's this wicked problem, right? Where, the amount of stress they induce with a productive training session is higher, so it incurs a greater recovery cost. The amount of work that they actually have to do to induce much adaptation also goes up by virtue of being trained because as you adapt the sort of, or at least I think as you adapt the threshold of work that you have to do to get better goes up a little bit. So they have to do more to actually get much better. When they do more, it imposes more stress and they have to recover more. And so what I think tends to happen is the more advanced you get, the more you need to undulate or periodize or both your training Mm. to allow you to actually have harder training sessions spaced at an appropriate distance so that you can recover enough to actually impose stress and so what i think what i think is the case is basically that those training structures almost come about as a result of you not being able to train or grow as often Mm. right whereas when you're less advanced or in the case of just like smaller weaker people generally which is why like you know lightweight men and women tend to be able to train more frequently and harder Mm. with high volumes if you just don't induce as much stress then some of those harder planning considerations are less important for you because like you can just turn up every three or four days and train hard when you're like monstrous and and a really hard squat session buries you for six or seven days um, then in order to keep you sufficiently recovered and allow you to provide overload, you need to have hard sessions, easy sessions, you know, high volume sessions, lower volume sessions, and you might, you know, your training needs to gravitate towards those structures and have more picks and drops in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, 
And that's that's not just true for strength training. I think that is true for hypertrophy training Absolutely. as well. Um, and that's also one of the reasons why I think a lot of really big people tend to gravitate towards bro splits, basically. Yeah. Because it's like if it if it takes you ten or twelve sets to really induce much stress on your on your body and make it grow, then and they're actually twelve hard sets, then chances are four days later you're not going to do twelve hard sets again. It's, Absolutely. It's going to well, be like I even found as as I've grown, um, you know, like I, I'll feel the effects of a couple of sets way more, like. You know, so my conditioning is, is probably the same or better than than throughout my uh, my training uh, life. But the I think I'm just there's that much more muscle, for example, in my legs, especially where you know a few sets and I'm feeling genuinely sick. You know, whereas before it would maybe you know it would be that eighth or tenth set that was really hard where I'd start feeling like a little bit nauseous or something. But now it can sometimes take three sets and I'm like, what the hell is going on? I feel yeah, terrible. Feel and I think it was, it was just generating that much more stress. Yeah. Um anyway, I'm can't wait for the day when I'm big enough for that to actually happen. <laughs> um, but but no, even in my even in the past three or four years for me, where you know, say my squat's gone up fifty fifty ish kilos, yeah. I've started to notice because you know I still chew through work relatively well, mm. but like you know, God, it gets harder. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. And so yeah, that probably has some implication for how hard you can train as well. Um, so one thing I want to, you sort of brought up junk volume earlier and mm. I wanted to have a bit of a discussion about what junk volume is and also try and reconcile why we're saying, you know, 10 or 20 sets a week will make you grow heaps. But I have mates say who do 20 sets of chest twice a week and seem to be ticking along fine. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so, you know, maybe we're just pussies that read too much science and don't train. Um, so first things first, what's junk volume and, you know, if we need to limit or eliminate it, how do we do it? Well, I think there's a couple of aspects to junk volume, but essentially what it is, is it's volume that's not necessarily contributing to further stimulus of muscle growth or strength. So that could be that it's just too light um, and, and you're just not doing enough like hard work like we've spoken about. Or it could be that you reach a point where you've done so much work and continuing to do more on top of it is not actually gaining you any more, any further adaptation for that session. Sure. So maybe you should, should have topped out at like eight sets on a body part for um, a given workout, but you've decided to go ham and you've done 16 sets. Maybe those extra eight sets actually have not contributed to any more muscle growth. And so you should have just stopped and gone home or whatever. Yeah. Um, so junk volume essentially is just not really contributing to the adaptation, uh, whether it's too light, whether it's too little or too much volume, I suppose. I'm glad you actually delineated between the two options yeah. because I think a lot of people think of junk volume as just the ones where your sets aren't hard enough. Yep. And like I've said, I'm actually not sure where the cutoff is of a set that's honestly not hard enough to make you grow. But if like if it's not effortful in the slightest, that's probably junk. Yeah, I, I mean, like I used that thought experiment before where if you come in and you did one set of bench press, you wouldn't really expect to grow. But like, would you expect to go from two sets, three sets? Like at what point does that tick over into like, oh, we've hit the threshold now and now we're going to induce a significant amount of growth. It's really hard to tell. Well, I did that thought experiment before you. <laughs> and I actually did. Um, I could bring up my draft article now. Um, oh, well, there you go. Yeah, but no, what I was thinking was, I thought one set probably wouldn't be enough to make you grow. But then I thought of all the circumstances in which actually people have. Yeah. And so when you look at like, you know, some of these reviews about how much work people are doing, 
like Schoenfeld's won, you know, one set through to 10 sets. Yeah. People in the one set group still grew. Yeah. Albeit probably mostly beginners, but that happens. So beginners in general, one set can make you grow. You know, there's the famous Dr. Yesus one by 20 yeah. program for youth athletes. I mean, they do 20, 20 reps on like 15 exercises of yeah. which maybe three cover a body part, but they're all meant to be easy. People still grow from doing a bunch of piss light work, you know, once a couple of times a week. So that's, that still works. And then, you know, back in the day when HIT or HIT training meant mm. not skipping lots, but like meant, meant doing one really hard set to failure, there were still people who grew from that. Yeah, and, absolutely. Um, and, you know, there's plenty of people who also topped out doing that probably because eventually that stimulus does get insufficient. But one set actually can make you grow, yeah, at least sure. in some respects. But it seemed like, but the evidence seems clear that doing more is better. Mm. And so when you look at like the Krieger analysis that, preceded the Schoenfeld one um, they found that two to three sets per workout was clearly better than one and there was a trend favoring four to six and then you know I think James Krieger has gone and written more about what the per session dose should be but I haven't subscribed to his research review yet sorry James um, so I haven't read it but but like you know it's undoubtable that doing more than one is better but I don't know if one is insufficient and then for strength training I thought of all these examples where there are people who do effectively one hard set and grow mm. like the mad cow routine heaps of people do well in that intermediate one and that ramps up to one hard set of five yep there's plenty of people who come in and do one top set of squats or whatever they work up to a heavy triple and then they piss off and do something else and they get stronger from doing that yep because a lot of the strength adaptations are like neural mm. or neuromuscular as opposed to just putting on muscle size and so i think with sufficient intensity of effort very low volumes can work for strength just great yep um so i actually i'm not sure if one set is insufficient i think it's certainly suboptimal but um but i actually think one set might be enough in many circumstances yeah i would agree with that and again you know coming back to how difficult the actual set is but uh i think that's that's true yeah it's perfectly reasonable to say that yeah yeah so i'm not sure um what was the actual question junk junk volume yeah yeah so um so then the other end of the spectrum is stuff that's past the past the point at which things are stimulative. Is there a way that you can think of that people could sort of identify, right, like I've hit, I've hit my top out range and I don't need to do more? I don't know that you can. I think it's a bit hard. And the problem is that it's going to be a floating number, you know, yeah. like because the sum of your, your ability to recover entails a lot of different things, you know, it's from psychological factors to nutritional factors to a bunch of others. Um, and so I think it's a little bit of a floating target and it can be quite difficult to determine. So there's some people who then subscribe to the idea of, well, you should do as much as you possibly can. And there's other people who subscribe to the idea of, let's do minimum effective dose, um, you know, uh, so that you, you're not, you're kind of leaving a ceiling for yourself to progress. Um, I think it's a bit hard to determine. I don't know if you have any good ideas of how to do it. Because again, if you're looking at studies and stuff, you can get a little bit of an idea of ranges, but they are averages. And again, it's not supposed, it can never be individually prescriptive. I actually don't have any good ideas, which mm. is why I was asking. Yeah, um, <laughs> too bad. I, yeah, fuck. <laughs> no, I did. I had a couple of thoughts. So I had a thought that I now think to be wrong. And so previously I had this, my idea was basically like, Say, let's imagine a chest day mm. and we start and we do some bench press and then we move on and we do some dumbbell press and all of our numbers are relatively reasonable. And then we go on to do incline bench press mm. after having done eight hard sets of pressing. 
And so I used to think, well, if fresh, I could incline bench press 80 kilos for sets of 10. Um, but after those eight sets, I can only really handle 60, 60 for 10s. Then those sets are likely not stimulative. Mm. And that was that was immediately appealing because I'm like, well, that's an indication I've already, I've already induced some fatigue and so they're not contributing to much. But with some deeper thought, I sort of abandoned that thinking because that I'm fatigued probably only means that I'm going to get sort of more effective reps at a lower dose of training. Yeah. And inducing some extra metabolic stress probably has some additive benefit. Exactly, yeah. So I'm not certain in that respect. And um, and that was honestly my only real thought about where I could where I could draw that line. And now I sort of just... Now I sort of tend to think of it as being <laughs> being like intuitively if I feel that I've given somebody a training dose that should induce a change I can look back after six-ish weeks and say well are they improving with this dose if not are they really recovering I can give them more Mm. if they're not really recovering I can give them less or change the training arrangement somewhat but I sort of um, I sort of do that and then try and prudently leave a bit of a gap above so I'm probably closer to thinking a minimum effective dose is good than going for a maximalist approach and the reason the reason is I do think there's benefit to doing things more often, um, two to three times a week, yep. probably for muscle growth. And the detriment of doing too much per session, or the biggest one that occurs to me, is that by inducing excess muscle damage or just an excess recovery cost, your ability to go and then produce an overloading session for you know three or four days later um, is diminished. And one of the papers that I cited in my long article about hypertrophy looked at people who'd done something like eight sets of pressing to failure mm. and four or five days after the fact their peak muscle force was reduced yep. which would which would indicate that they're still fatigued basically from the prior training session and so in my mind i sort of think well if you can do something that's sufficiently stimulating minimize the recovery cost it allows people to come back in and stimulate them like the muscle like the muscle the muscle to, to grow again so i tend towards a minimum double because i think there's not as much marginal benefit to pushing past it but if you were like if you're somebody who says, I just want to train on a body part split, then in my mind, I also sort of think, well, fuck it, do Bury it heaps. Yeah. Like, because if you're going to be recovered in a week's time anyway, and you're not sure whether the most effective dose is 14 or 20 sets, then it doesn't really matter because in a week's time, you're going to be recovered from either. So just do whatever you want. That's my yeah. yeah, so I had two thoughts. The first is just practicality in yeah. that, you know, like for most people training the biggest struggle is just getting them consistent uh, and coming into the gym and wanting to train. And for me, I was at a point at one point where I was training for bodybuilding and my sessions were all like two hours plus type of thing. Yeah. And I just hated it. Like at the end of the day, I was just like, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, so for me, an enjoyable session is something where I can like get in enough volume within under an hour, you know? Um, so there's that, there's a practicality side of things. And, and the fact that, the more volume you do at some point, there's going to be a diminishing return. So it might be like, yeah, okay, if you did 15 sets, you'd get a certain response. And if you did 20 resets, it would be 20 sets. It would be better, but how much better would it be? Would it even be measurable? Like maybe not. Um, and then the second idea was of muscle damage, you know? So for example, we know in, in beginners, when they commence an exercise program, you might not even see an increase in actual muscle mass for the first couple of weeks, maybe even the first month, because they're so, um, susceptible to muscle damage and eventually you you build a resistance to muscle damage Mm. um but initially they 
they see so much muscle damage that it's basically all their body can do to synthesize enough protein to just account for the amount that they've damaged their muscles and they don't actually grow any new tissue until they get that sort of resistance to the muscle damage and then they can actually start accruing new protein in the muscles. So I think, yeah, muscle damage is a concern. Um, and yeah, I think if you're always chasing soreness and chasing muscle damage, then you're likely actually trading off some growth exactly. just to have that post-session feeling of like my chest is on fire. Exactly, exactly. And so I think always being sore and always trying to do more and more and more, you do get to a point where you, you're potentially digging the hole so deep that you're actually cutting off the top of the hill that you build afterwards. Mm. So, yeah, I agree with everything you said there. Mm. Um, so that all said... Like I said, I have friends who do heaps of volume, and they and they and they grow just fine. Yep. And then you know, there's been a couple of studies recently um, where people have done much higher volumes than ten sets twice a week or eight sets twice a week, and grown just great. So I actually can't remember who was first author of the one that Lyle got mad at, but then but he actually got mad about this one too. Was the study by Juan where people had the graded the graded volume and the graded whey supplementation. Oh, yeah. I thought the graded whey supplementation was a cool idea. Yeah. So um, I'm going to describe this really poorly on the very small chance that Cody Juan listens to this podcast. <laughs> I'm sorry. But basically they had people doing a workout. I think it was five exercises, three times a week, sets of 10. And um, and it started, it started with them doing something like three sets of 10 on day one, two sets of 10 on day two, and three sets of 10 on day three. So that's like eight sets per week for each exercise and it ended up scaling up to them doing like 10 sets, eight sets and 10 sets or something absurd. Yeah. So every body part ended up being hit by like 35 or 40 sets. Yeah. A week. I think it was like 40 sets a week at the end or something like outrageous. Right. But they were all, they were all done at about 60% one RM. Um, and then they took, um, RAI ratings from all the, all the participants and they were always in the three to five rep range. And there's a really good write-up on Stronger by Science about it that the author actually put out himself a couple of days ago. Um, and he suspects that those reps and reserve ratings were just getting increasingly inaccurate across the study. Yeah. Um, but they actually did find at least to some degree increasing growth with the increasing volumes across the study um, in, like in spite of exceeding the caps that Luke and I are talking about. But I suspect, and other people have said this, and even the author acknowledged it, I suspect that part of that is because intensity wasn't progressing and because each set was actually so easy on a set-by-set basis. And I think that if all of your training does actually stay away from the from the true like three-ish reps and reserve range, that you will need to do more volume. And this is just like what I was saying with squats and rep PBs and things. If you are not actually getting within the appropriate reps and reserve rating then you will need to do more volume to see an equivalent amount of effective reps or an equivalent amount of growth. And so I don't consider it an effective use of your time. But if you like your training to be sort of easy and comfortable and just fun, then you probably do need to do many more sets. Yeah. Um, that was one of the biggest takeaways that I took from that study itself, basically. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's perfectly fine for many people, I think. But yeah. I think especially in a situation I'm thinking of is like, you know, when uh, when I was younger and you kind of have your mates in the gym and it's kind of just a you-go-I-go go type thing, you're never really pushing that hard. Yeah. You're just doing tons of volume and kind of, you know, it's just, it's still pretty quick, but yeah, yeah it's just not that hard, well, really. That's like how I sort of started loving training. Is, yeah. And, you know, there's folks I'm talking about who do 20 sets twice a week. 
I've been training with them for the past month. It's been awesome fun. Yeah. And yeah, I show up at the gym and I, you know, I actually, my sets got quite hard, so I got really yeah. beaten up and that's why I stopped. Um, <laughs> but, but no, it's like, it's good fun to just sit around the blokes and shoot the shit and, you know, do a whole bunch of sets of 10 for your chest. But, yeah. but if your sets aren't hard and you're not actually trying to push load progression on them, then you're going to have to do more sets to see an equivalent growth response. That's what I think. Yeah. And at that point, I'm not really sure that that those sets I would describe them as junk volume because they're actual they're volume that has additive benefit sure. I would say they're inefficient volume yes but again if that's what you're there for that's fine and many people find actually hard training very unpleasant yeah so, yeah exactly. you know, if that's the case and you're willing to spend more time in the gym then sweet do lots more easy sets yep um, you know so anyway that's what I think I don't know I would agree um, let's quickly talk about how this relates to strength so we've spoken about how sets that are closer to failure are more effective probably on a set-by-set basis for hypertrophy. Is that the case for strength? Um, it depends. I think with strength, obviously, your goal typically, if we're talking powerlifting, is to express a one rep max, right? Yeah. So you do need practice close to failure yeah. uh, with a very heavy load. Uh, that's essentially what you're looking to do. So at some point, yeah, you do have to get close to failure and feel what that's like and understand what a heavy load is close to failure. Mm. Um, But like we've spoken about throughout, you can still develop motor patterns and skills with submaximal weights. You can still grow to some extent with submaximal weights. And so it's not necessary to be, you know, within one to three reps from failure on every single set as a a strength trainee either. Mm. Uh, You know, so yeah, at, at some point we do want to induce hypertrophy uh, because if we have a, a bigger engine, so to speak, you can then shift more weight. Um, but at the same time, we're also looking to develop a skill and manage fatigue throughout that time. So, Yeah, a couple of observations I've made, um, and this is stuff Alex and I talk about all the time because we're always like advocating training being not that hard. Mm. Um, yeah, so first observation is that lots of people develop strength doing training that is on a set by set basis not very difficult yeah um like a lot further than three reps in reserve often five to eight reps in reserve um and partly that's because of the motor patterning thing and partly because provided external resistance is relatively high you can still impart near maximal forces on it and just move it quicker exactly i mean and it does need to be sufficiently heavy so say you you know it's probably got to be above 75 80 percent for that to matter but if you're doing doubles at 80% or triples at 80%. They're pretty easy sets. Yeah. Um, not piss easy, but they're certainly not hard. Um, and likewise, you know, at 75%, if you're doing fives, it's not hard. Hmm. Um, but it allows you to, yeah, really nail your motor patterning and really do things fast. And I find that if you do a lot of training that's relatively easy and it does develop some of those qualities and you accompany it with some hypertrophy work, you build a lot of capacity and it's like, I hate using the analogy of the bowstring that you're drawing back because that's what people used to say about reverse dieting. Yeah. But like, but you, you build a lot of capacity for strength and then as you get towards a peaking phase where by necessity you do have to handle heavier loads and by necessity heavier loads get closer to failure because like if you're using a 3RM load, if you do it for a single, you're still two reps in reserve. Like it's yeah, exactly. already close to failure. Um, as you start to push those loads heavier, you often surpass you often surpass where you would expect yourself to be because mm. you've built all that sort of strength capacity um, through those qualities of yeah motor patterning and building some muscle and things like that. Um, but the reverse doesn't seem to be true. So anyway, you can push your loads up higher. You go a long way. You, 
you get fewer reps in reserve, your sets are harder, but you get stronger. The reverse doesn't seem to be true in my estimation is that a lot of people who actually do training that's really hard on a set-by-set basis don't get as much better. Sometimes they don't get as much better as they would if they were to train easier, Mm. but certainly they don't get better at a rate that justifies how hard their training is and the injury risk. Partly because they don't get the chances to like practice motor patterning and stuff as well. Partly because they can't tolerate the volumes of general work and stuff that help them build muscle. You know, I'm sure there might be other reasons as well. Maybe just the fatigue actually stops them from imparting maximal force on submaximal loads yeah. from them being really hard. But often the the much harder training doesn't yield as big of a benefit. And so, so one of the things that I think about powerlifting training is basically that a lot of your powerlifting sets are going to be relatively easy. But if, you, if you're looking to build some muscle and stuff, you actually have to accompany it with bodybuilding work that's relatively hard. Mm. And that's something that a lot of powerlifters, probably to their detriment, shirk. Um, is, yeah, they don't go and make their accessories hard. They really bitch it. And then, yeah, and then they don't get as sure. much stronger as they could have. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I think. Uh, yeah, I think it's pretty accurate uh, from what I've seen. Not that I'm like a massive powerlifting coach, but certainly uh, agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think we've probably spoken about almost everything that I wanted to talk about. Is there anything that you would sort of sum up in a practical sense for people just about how they can think about training volume and structuring a routine? Like what would be your practical advice? Well, I think the main thing is that you have to be thinking about it in the first place. Uh, You know, just going in and shifting a bunch of weight around and not really recording or tracking what you're doing, I don't think is very productive in the long term. Um, And so just starting to think about how you can quantify the amount of work you're doing um, and the quality of that work is really important, I think. Um, now, there's still some uh, nebulous sort of areas here, like mind-muscle connection and, and all this type of stuff, uh, which I'm sure will be elucidated a bit further as we're going along um, with research. But uh, I think just starting to think about how much volume am I doing per body part? How close to failure am I truly getting? And what seems to work best for me? If I push my volume past a certain point, do I start getting niggles? Do I start uh, getting hurt? Do I start feeling really, really tired? Uh, general feelings of fatigue. And if I do you know, a lot less than this, do I seem to be progressing? Um, you know, and so I suppose that's the, the general model that you know, Israel and, and all of them are, are talking about where you're kind of trying to find a minimum effective dose, MEV, minimum effective volume, and then trying to find what you're maximally sort of capable of before you start falling apart. And then just being somewhere in between that for most of the time and just trying to progress in terms of, you know, load and, and that type of thing, implying some sort of progressive overload while still hitting that sort of middle range of effective volume. Yeah. Um, agree with everything you said. I think one of the biggest tools, other than just having a coach, because a coach does this by definition, Yeah. Um, one of the most useful skills that people can learn is just an ability to take a bit more of a global look at their training. Mm. Um, and particularly with hypertrophy training, it's very easy to get caught up in um, in how stimulative and hard a session feels on its own. But really, you do need to sit back. It's actually a melding of two views. You need to sit back and sort of take a global look and say, am I seeing progress in the indicators that I, that I want to? Is my training dose appropriate? You know, can I push a little bit harder? Do I need to push a little bit harder? All those questions. So you need to be able to sit back and do that. And then at the same time, invest yourself in on a rep by rep basis, actually like doing the sort of dark arts of bodybuilding you're talking about, like having an appropriate mind-muscle connection, Mm. executing well, pushing your sets appropriately hard, doing all of those things. But you need to be able to 
need to be able to split the two and not just get sort of so in the pocket every time you train that you just yeah. start jamming out and doing way too many sets just for fun um, exactly but yeah anyway train hard train right that's it <laughs> <laughs> inorganic phosphate inorganic phosphate alright um, that's a wrap thank you very much so yeah that was Luke where can where can people find you on social media and if they want to hire you uh, at Luke Lucid Health is my handle on Instagram um, and you can email me Luke at lucidhealthcoaching.com for any inquiries or if you want even if you want some clarification on some of the stuff we've spoken about more than happy to have a chat yeah and the lucid health physiology yeah so links in the if you look at my instagram bio the links in there uh for 2019 the applications have not yet opened but they should be maybe by the end of january i'll be doing an intake so how much inorganic phosphate content is there probably too much (laughs) (laughs) i don't know if there's such thing but uh you might have to sign up and see about all the wonders of inorganic phosphate i actually don't think i talk about it very much so don't worry (laughs) <laughs> that's that's the secret that you keep for that's, that's, it. that's the three. super advanced <laughs> yeah, yeah it's just an organic prospect <laughs> alright guys thanks very much I'm Will Berkman um, what am I on Instagram w.berkmanpt yeah something um, like yeah, that yeah please follow me <laughs> please <laughs> alright see you later <laughs>